All right, you can open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 2. If you have one of our Bibles uh, on the, from the welcome table, we're going to be on page 909. Today we're going to look at verses 21 through 35 this morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. This is the last uh, uh, message in a little three-part series that we, we did. We, we paused in Genesis. We're in Luke. Uh, we looked at Luke 1. Last Sunday, we looked at a little bit of Luke 3 last, uh, or this Friday night at, at Christmas Eve. This morning, we're going to look at, at Luke chapter 2 here, and, uh, and, and it's particularly these, these passages, or these verses that talk about Jesus' uh, circumcision, and then this instance at the temple where uh, Simeon comes. And we're going to meet this man named Simeon today, okay? He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible but what he sees in these verses and what he says in these verses is something that we cannot overlook because his words cut to the heart of the gospel and the gospel itself cuts to our hearts and invites us to see and receive the Savior of the world. And so uh, I know we prayed, I know we, we, we pray together uh, as a specific time of the service, but I really always love to just after giving us and preparing us for the, the passage that we're going to read, I love to just pray one more time so that the Lord uh, makes it really clear that this is his word and not mine, okay? So I want to do that, and then we will we'll get into this passage. Father, I pray that through your word, the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may know the hope of your calling, what is the wealth of your glorious inheritance in the saints, What is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of your strength, not ours? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, be honest. How many of you are going to put away Christmas decorations after church today? Anybody? A couple? Um, like, Like you're like, okay, we did Christmas, it's over, it's time to move on, right? How many of you let it go until the end of the year? Like New Year's is good. Okay, how many of you are the diehards and just, like, it's, it's winter time, so it's Christmas time, okay? So when spring comes, then we can take the stuff down. Anybody? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, whether or not, whatever camp you fall into, like, Christmas was yesterday, was yesterday right? And so there is this, like, all this anticipation of, it, of, of it, its arrival, and then it gets here, and then sort of we wake up the next morning, and it's like, well, okay, we did that right? It's, it's here and it's gone. So why did we sing Christmas carols this morning? Why, did we, uh, why are we going to look at another passage that deals with Jesus' birth? Because we need to understand the connection between Jesus' birth and, and, and the rest of Jesus' life, okay? This passage is going to help us rightly move on from the birth of Jesus to the mission of Jesus, You see, sometimes I think it's hard for us to to look at Jesus the baby and see Jesus the Savior. There can be this disconnect in our minds because it's uncomfortable to deal with the reality that this child, this, this baby, this newborn, was born for the purpose of dying was born so to die so that he could save others. And so today's passage is going to invite us to look at Jesus the baby one more time and see Jesus the Savior with our own eyes and receive him with our hearts. And so in our passage this morning, in order to see Jesus as the Savior, we need to see Jesus' perfect obedience. 
And then we need to see Jesus' salvation for all people. And then we need to see our own need for that salvation. And so that's what we're going to work through as we go this morning. We're going to start by seeing Jesus' perfect obedience. Look at uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it was written, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, because we don't live according to these ceremonial laws and, and sacrifices, it can be easy for us to just kind of gloss over these verses and sort of check them off as irrelevant in our minds. Like this is just background context, right? It is, but it's important to us. If we overlook these things, we're going to miss out on the deeper richness and, and the beauty of the gospel that these verses give us. So let's, let's just take a little closer look at what's happening here. If you remember in Genesis, as we've been going through it, you remember God's covenant with Abraham, and God, God promised to give Abraham land and offspring and blessing, and, and to bless the world through Abraham, right? In Genesis 17, God instituted a covenant obligation for Abraham and all of his descendants to obey if they wanted to participate in that covenant, and that was circumcision. Every male had to be circumcised on the eighth day, or he and his family would be cut off from the covenant people and from the blessings of the covenant. God's promises, we saw this in chapter 15 of Genesis, they were unconditional for the the people as a whole, but they were conditional for the individual. No circumcision, no covenant. If you don't get circumcised, you're cut off from the people. And that's why Jesus that's why we can't gloss over verses or verse 21 here in Luke chapter 2. It's important that Jesus was circumcised. On the eighth day, because that means that he fulfilled the covenant obligation of of Abraham. If Jesus wasn't circumcised on the eighth day, according to the covenant law, he would be cut off from receiving the covenant blessings. Not only that, but God promised Abraham that he would bring blessing to the nations through Abraham's offspring. And we know that Jesus is the offspring of of blessing that God was pointing to in that promise Galatians 3.16 tells us, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed who is Christ. But Jesus, Jesus can't be the one who brings a promised blessing to the nations if he can't first receive it as the inheritance, as the promised seed of Abraham. And he can't receive it as the inheritance, as the promised seed of Abraham, if he's not circumcised. He has to fulfill the covenant law. And when he was circumcised, he was named Jesus. When the boys are circumcised on the eighth day, that's when they get named. And the name that was given to him by the angel before he was conceived, in in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel told Mary, you're going to name him Jesus. In Matthew, the angel told Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. And as he fulfilled the covenant obligation of Abraham, the one who was the true recipient of all the blessings that God had promised to Abraham, all of that gets fulfilled in Christ. 
and the one who is the true promised child of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations, what, what is he named? He's named Yahweh saves. Isn't that beautiful? That's gospel right there. In, in the circumcision of Jesus, we see the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant and the beginnings, the beginnings of the one who would bring the new covenant. But his circumcision is only part of the picture here. After, after God brought Israel out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai uh, to worship him, he expanded this Abrahamic covenant by making a covenant with the people using Moses as a mediator. And in that covenant, God gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them a whole bunch of other laws to govern them as a nation and establish how they were to relate to God and how, and how they would relate to one another. This, this covenant through Moses uh, uh, included... Uh, the moral law included civil law and included ceremonial laws that emphasized the people's need for purity and holiness and revealed their inability to remain pure and holy on their own. And through this, this time, though, God, God, instead of cutting people off of the covenant for good because of their disobedience, he gave them a way to be reinstated into the covenant and the promises when he installed priests and gave them sacrifices and, and a tabernacle where, where he could dwell among them and they could come give those sacrifices, the priests would on behalf of the people. So by referring to the law of Moses and to the law of the Lord multiple times here in verses 22 through 24, this is what Luke is alluding to. Okay? He's pointing back to these ceremonial laws and these sacrifices through the law of Moses, the Lord laid out things that revealed a person's sin and required forgiveness in order to be reinstated into the covenant relationship with God and fellowship with the covenant community. But in that, then, there were also things that weren't sinful, yet made a person ceremonially unclean. Giving birth to a child wasn't sinful, but it made the mother unclean because of the blood loss that came with childbirth. That blood loss is associated with an increased chance of disease and death, and that's, that's anti, that, that's, re, that's fall related. That's not God and glory related. That's not life related. So it makes, it makes her unclean. And to be ritually unclean meant she, that, that she couldn't go near God's presence in the, tabernac, uh, in the tabernacle or in Mary's case in the temple. They're in, they're in Jerusalem now. The temple is, is there nor could she participate in any sacrificial meals or fellowship with others until she re was made ritually pure again. She was isolated, okay? And in, in Leviticus 12, the process for purification was established. The whole process took 40 days for a woman who gave birth to a son. For the first seven days, she was considered unclean. She had to remain isolated from the community and from the tabernacle, or, or again, in Mary's case, from the temple, after those seven days are over, she enters a period of 33 days where she's neither unclean nor clean, but she doesn't have to remain isolated. And so the first thing that they get to do is go take the son and have him circumcised. That's why they're circumcised on the eighth day, okay? She's unclean for the first seven and can't do it. They get to the eighth and she can. At the end of the 40 days, she has to offer a sacrifice in order to be made ceremonially clean and, and resume worship and fellowship with the covenant community. So these 40 days are, are what Luke is referring to in verse 22 when he says, the days of their purification according to the law of Moses. Now that sacrifice that she was to make was 
the sacrifice that was required to make her ceremonially pure again was a lamb and a dove or a pigeon. But in his grace, God made accommodations for the poor who couldn't afford a lamb. He says, if you can't afford a lamb, you could bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So that's what Mary did in verse 24. A pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. And she and Joseph, they weren't well off financially, but they were well off spiritually. It wasn't the price of the sacrifice that God was concerned with. It was the posture of the worshiper's heart. And Mary and Joseph's posture was one of humble trust and obedience in the Lord. And although they were too poor to to afford a lamb for Mary's ceremonial purity, God richly blessed them by allowing them to provide the lamb that would bring about cleansing for all who trust in him. Eternal cleansing, not just ceremonial. This is beautiful. This is the gospel again. Right here, According to the law of the Lord, every firstborn male must be dedicated to the Lord. This comes from Exodus 13. On the night before, uh, or on the night of the Passover in Egypt, if you you, you remember, God God killed all the firstborn males uh, of human males and livestock animals uh, of the Egyptians. And he spared every Israelite male human firstborn and livestock through the sacrifice of a lamb in their place. They killed the lamb, they spread the blood over the door. God saw the blood, passed over. Spared their life. Because God ransomed them from death with this lamb, every firstborn male in Israel then belonged to him and was dedicated, uh, and was dedicated to him, to his service. That meant that every firstborn livestock was either sacrificed as a, uh, an offering to God, was killed because it wasn't, uh, if it was an unclean animal or, or un- a blemished animal, it was just killed or it was redeemed with a payment, and every firstborn male was consecrated to serve at the the tabernacle. But then we get to Numbers chapter 3, and God takes the Levites for himself to serve at the tabernacle from now on in place of the firstborn males, in place of the Israelites' firstborn sons. And in Numbers 18, God says that every firstborn son has to be redeemed from the service of the tabernacle by paying a price of five shekels. So they have to go pay a redemption price for this son. This, is what, uh, this was meant to, to serve as this continual reminder that God delivered his people from Egypt by his own power, and only he had the right, rightful claim to their lives. God says, you're mine. You're mine. By presenting Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph are obeying this law, this law of the Lord. They're acknowledging that their firstborn son belonged to the Lord, belonged to God. And how wonderful that the son that they dedicated to the Lord's service would grow up to, de- to deliver his people from their sins and to be the one that pays the ransom price for their redemption. Here's the gospel. All of this right here, this is the beauty of the gospel in customs and practices that we are not familiar with. But it's because of Jesus that we're not super familiar with him. Jesus grew up in service to his heavenly father because he came down from heaven to do his father's will. It was the father's will to give his son as a ransom for many and to deliver his people. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly and fulfilled it completely so that he could give his perfect righteousness 
to the unrighteous and purify them, us, all who believe in him forever. But this cleansing would be more for more than just the Jews. His salvation is for all people. We need to see that. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought the child Jesus, brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Simeon was a righteous and devout Jew. Okay? His name means one who hears and obeys, and it's evident in these verses that that's exactly what he's doing. He, he was living by faith in God's promises and trusting God to provide Israel's Messiah, the long-awaited, the consolation of Israel, right? We sang about that this morning. That's on that handout that, that uh, is back on the table there, these longings of Israel, He's waiting, watching, waiting. And then it happens. Verse 25 says that, that Simeon was looking forward to Israel's consolation. I just said that. I just talked about that. But what does that mean? The, the, the Greek right there literally means comfort. Simeon is waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he made through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 49 describes this, really 49 through 53, talks, that, talks about the, this servant that would come his servant of the Lord who will bring salvation to the people of Israel and to the nations. Isaiah 49, 13 says, Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth, rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. In Luke chapter 4, just, just a couple chapters from here, the adult Jesus walks into the, the synagogue in Nazareth and, and reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And when he finished reading, he rolls up the scroll, he sits down and he says, today, as you listen, this scripture is being fulfilled, is, has been fulfilled. You know what he read from in Isaiah? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it stops right there in Luke 4. But whenever Jewish uh, rabbis and teachers would read something and they would start, it was meant to draw the, the listeners on into what's, what's next. It's almost more about what he doesn't say than what he does say. And here's what he says, what it says in Isaiah 61. Verse 2, after, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. Jesus is the one who will comfort. He is the servant of the Lord from Isaiah and how will he bring comfort to those who mourn? By bearing the vengeance of God for our sins on the cross. 
The same spirit of the Lord that was on Christ to comfort his people was the same spirit who was on Simeon to bring him comfort at Christ's coming. And the Holy Spirit guided Simeon to the temple courtyard on the right day and at the right time to the right people so that he could see the Lord's Messiah before he saw death. God is sovereign over all of this. He's planning all of this. And Simeon not only saw the Messiah, he cradled him in his arms. Can you imagine that? Like, like just think about that for a second. Imagine holding the living God and the Savior of the world in your arms. How do you hold the one who knit you together in your mother's womb? It's almost incomprehensible, right? How do you do that? It really happened, though, because Jesus really came and put on flesh. Simeon's not holding a spirit. He's holding a human, the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Simeon really held the living God and Savior of the world in his arms because that God and Savior took humanity upon himself. And he was born as as a baby into this world that he created, mind-boggling, so that he could grow up and die as a man to save people who are dead in sin. So what do you do if you're Simeon here? You do what Simeon did. You hold this baby up and you praise God. You praise God for keeping his promise. You see, Simeon could now die in peace because his eyes had seen God's salvation in the face of Jesus Christ and his soul had found comfort that he had been longing for. Do you have that comfort? Or are you still longing for it? Simeon rejoiced not only that salvation had come for him, but that it had come for his people Israel. And not only that it had come for Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. His statement in verse 31, again, draws back to Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 9 and 10 says, Be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. As he praised God, Simeon called God's salvation a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Again, he's drawing from the servant song in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 5 through 6. And now says the Lord who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and and my God is my strength. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, the Gentiles didn't have the covenant promises. They didn't know God like the people of Israel did. They needed light because they walked in darkness. And the revelation that they received uh, or that, was, that they received was that through Christ, Paul tells us this in Ephesians, they could become co-heirs with the Israelites, members of the same body with them and partners with them in the new covenant promises in Christ through the gospel. That's us. We get that. Christ's salvation was glory for the people of Israel because they had the revelation of God. They had the old covenant promises that were driving them to Christ. They should have seen it coming. 
They're the people through whom the Savior of the world came. But just because the Savior came from them doesn't mean that they were saved. And, and through his earthly ministry, Jesus would confront them with this reality. You see, it's really clear in the New Testament that both Jew and Gentile need salvation. And it only comes by faith. And so that's the last thing we need to see this morning. We need to see our need for salvation. Look at verse 33. His mother and father were amazed at what was being said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. A sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Last week in Luke 1, we looked at Mary's song. And, and, and in it, she said this. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he's looked with favor on the condition of his humble servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Well, we can count Simeon into those generations here because it says that he blessed her and Joseph along with her in verse 34. In Luke 1, 51 and 52, Mary says, God has done a mighty deed with his arm. He scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He's toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Simeon corroborates that here in verse 34 and 35. The rise and fall of many. He said that Jesus was destined to be the cause of that. Literally, the ruin, the fall, the ruin, and the rise, the resurrection of many in Israel. Jesus would topple the mighty and, and exalt the lowly. Some would listen to Jesus' message. Some would observe his ministry, and they would totally reject it, believing that they could find life in some other way on their own through their own obedience to the law. They would be ever hearing, but never understanding. They would be ever seeing, but never perceiving. They would be hard-hearted and dismissive. Some would do more than dismiss Jesus. The proud Jewish leaders, they would oppose him and they would recruit the Romans then to kill him because they were so furiously against him. The servant of the Lord that Isaiah spoke about, the one who would bring comfort and salvation to his people and to the nations, this servant of the Lord, Jesus, would, would, be, uh, would do so by suffering and dying for our sins. He's a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was despised and rejected by men. They opposed him. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was taken away because of oppression and, and judgment, and yet he did not open his mouth. He gave no defense. The only one that ever could remain silent. Isaiah 53, 4, and six, four through 6 says this, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. That's his fault. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him, this servant the one who would bring comfort and salvation for the iniquity of us all. 
he took the punishment. Simeon told Mary that a sword would pierce her own soul. Mary would experience soul-piercing sorrow as she stood by the cross from her adult son and her Savior and it watched him be pierced because of our rebellion and crushed because of our iniquities, Mary would know the cost of salvation. But Mary would also know salvation. Her soul would not only be pierced with, with grief, Mary's soul would be saved by grace. Her crippling sorrow at her son's death would turn into everlasting joy at her Savior's resurrection. That's why he came. In Luke 2, when the shepherds hurried off to Bethlehem and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, they reported all the, the things that the angels had said about this child. Today in the city of David, a Savior is born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. They came and they told all this to Mary. And what does it say? It says, when the mother of Jesus heard these things, she treasured them up in her heart and she meditated on them. Now that sign that was swaddled tightly in cloth and lying in a manger would become a sign to be opposed and nailed naked to a cross so that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. You see, Mary knew herself to be a sinner in need of a savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in God, my savior. She found salvation through her son. The thoughts that she had tre treasured up in her heart and meditated on had been revealed through the death and resurrection of God, her Savior. Her soul that was pierced with sorrow would magnify the Lord because her son, who was destined to cause the rise and the fall of many, had lifted her up in her humble state and raised her to new life in him. And the gospel reveals the true thoughts of all of our hearts. The cross of Christ confronts us with the reality that it was our sin that put him there. Some oppose that reality. They hold on to the delusions of self-sovereignty and self-sufficiency, either claiming that they have no need for forgiveness or that they can fix themselves. Maybe you were like that. Maybe you are like that. Maybe you know somebody like that. To them, the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved... The cross is the power of God for salvation. We look at the cross of Jesus and, and, and his death and we say, he died for me. He was pierced for my rebellion. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace, it was put on him and by his wounds, I have been healed. The birth of Christ was always designed to point us to the death of Christ. Christmas leads us to the cross. and then the resurrection. I know we celebrate Christmas, and then later we celebrate Easter, but that's how it happened in the Bible. But we can't separate those two things from one another, or we only have half the picture. Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, God became like us in every way, yet he was without sin, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. 
born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. We sang that this morning. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life in every way and fulfilled the law and all of the promises of God through the old covenant. All of them came to completion in Jesus. And then he gave his life on the cross as a perfect substitute, as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave in power to show that, or so that we could stand before God in the eternal, perfect righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and live forever with him. You see, Israel's consolation has come. And he's the light of revelation to us. For God who said, let light shine out in darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 4. Do you have this light? Or are you still walking in darkness? God's word has made it clear for us this morning. He knows what's in our hearts. Better than we do. Christ knows the thoughts of your heart. The darkness is not dark to the light of the world. The darkness of our sin is why he came. In him is life, John says in John 1, and that life is the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So don't remain in darkness. See the light of salvation in, in Jesus Christ. He reveals the thoughts of your heart, not to shame you, but to save you to pierce your soul with grief over your own sin and then to raise you up in comfort to see the hope of salvation in him. Why would you walk away from that? Why not turn to him? Why not confess what he already knows? Why not? Confess your sin and your need for forgiveness. Why not trust him to forgive you and to raise you up with him? He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. For those of us who have seen God's salvation in Christ, may we continue to praise God as Simeon did and give thanks to the Father who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, through Christ, we who were not a people have become God's people. We who had not received mercy have now received mercy. Through Christ, we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people for his own possession. We're his he has rightful claim on our lives so that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2. Like Simeon, our eyes have seen God's salvation. Now it's true. We haven't seen Jesus like Simeon did. We didn't get to hold Jesus in our arms. We haven't seen Jesus face to face yet. But John 1 says that Jesus is the word made flesh. And we've been given the written word. 
to take up in our arms as often as we want. And in here, as we open our eyes and read this, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that came on Simeon to show him salvation is the same Spirit that comes on us to show us salvation. As we hold this word and we read it and we trust the God who gave it to us. The more we take up God's word in our arms, the more we read it, the more we see his salvation with our own eyes, the more we'll be convinced and comforted. The more we do that, the more our lives will be filled with praise and peace as the Holy Spirit who dwells in us comforts our souls with gospel hope. You want to start 2022 off right? Take up and read. See the salvation that you've been given Because Christ now dwells in us through his Holy Spirit, we are now the light of the world. Jesus says that. We're called to proclaim this gospel to those who remain in darkness. And we proclaim, the, as we proclaim the gospel, we, we do so by proclaiming the word of God. There is no gospel without God's word. There's good news. If we just take the general word gospel, there's good news. Every TV commercial says my life's terrible this way, and then I found this product, and now it's great. That's a gospel message. But that's not the gospel message. We have a better message. We have to proclaim it. But we have to proclaim it according to God's word. Because when we proclaim the word of God to others... As we saw in Hebrews in our prayer time this morning, that word that we proclaim is living and it's effective and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It alone is able to reveal and judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God is responsible for salvation. We are responsible to proclaim the good news of it. So let's proclaim it. We proclaim the gospel through which he saves. And as we proclaim the word of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the one who, who came upon Simeon, the one who now dwells in us, that Holy Spirit convicts hardened hearts of those who hear this beautiful gospel message and opens their eyes, opens the eyes of their hearts, softens their hearts, gives them a new heart to see salvation and believe. God already knows what's in our hearts. The story in Luke 2 invites us to see what's in his. In love, he sent his son, born as a baby who would grow up to be a man, to save us from death by dying in our place so that we could see his salvation with eyes of faith and live forever. This story invites us to look upon Christ and to be comforted so don't reject him this morning. Receive him and rejoice with all who've been redeemed. We've, we've all been, had the, the ransom price paid for us. Salvation, comfort, consolation has come to us in Jesus Christ. So let the consolation of Israel be the joy of every longing heart.
Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord, I am grateful for your word that for however many Christmases we get to celebrate on this earth, Lord, your word teaches us over and over and over the full plan, the beauty that is God in the flesh, born to die so that we can live. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit who dwells in us, comforts our hearts, reminds us that we are children of God in Christ. And we thank you for your church. And we pray that you would help us as we seek to, to be the light of the world, as we seek to, to proclaim this good news of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would see here in this town, in this community, light pierce the darkness. Your word pierce hearts. And that we would see people see your salvation as we rejoice together in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.